If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 37. This morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 36. Um, in some ways, this, will, this is part two from last week. Um, we laid much of the groundwork, um, really that passage did, as we saw Israel's partiality toward Joseph. Um, this was accompanied by his brother's hatred. We'll see that again this week. Um, We saw last week in verse 3 that Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And then in verse 4, we see that when his brothers, so when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. So the sons of Israel, they hated Joseph, um, really, as we see here, because their father favored Joseph over the rest. So when Joseph told them about these dreams that he has, that just fueled their hatred. If you recall, if you know the Joseph story, he has two dreams which depict the same thing, same events of him ruling over his brothers. And so when he relayed these dreams, we see in verse eight that they hated him even more for his dreams. And then in verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. So they hated him, they were jealous of him, and as we'll see this morning, out of their hatred for him, they at first seek to kill him. But at Judah's behest, they decided to sell him instead. As Alan read earlier in verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites who were slave traders, and they did so. So Alan read 12 through 28 earlier um, where we see the sale of Joseph into slavery. I'm gonna go ahead and read verses 29 through 36, and then I'll pray. And just a note, many of the themes that we'll see, as I said earlier, will come back from last week. Um, This really is part two in many ways because God in his word has laid the groundwork, and now we just see the outflow of the brother's hatred, but we also are reminded of God's sovereign hand, that whatever God ordains is always right. So let's look, let's pick up in verse 29, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Christ, 
by the power of your spirit, and I pray that you will be with us in a special way. I pray that you will open our eyes to your glory, and I pray that you will help us to rest in your grace. Because as we look around, as we look at the world around us, we currently see war, we see conflict. And so I come, we come this morning, and we do pray for peace. But we also pray that justice will be served. You're a righteous God. We see in your word that you judge the wicked righteously. So we pray even in this day as nations and governments and man, we are tainted with sin, but we do still pray for your righteousness, for your righteous judgment, for your for justice. And also pray that you will guard our hearts, guard our minds so that we will not grow anxious and terrified by war and by rumors of war. Help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in your sovereign reign over both the good and the evil. It's easy to say these things, but help us to truly trust in you. I pray this morning, pray that we might be encouraged by your word. Pray we might be encouraged from these things as we see you working all things according to the counsel of your will. And also pray that as we're reminded of your great love for us in Christ, I do pray that our hearts would leap for joy. I pray that our mouths would erupt with praise for your glorious grace. Work in us, both to will and to do. Work in us to see your glory. Open our eyes, our hearts, to love Christ, to love you, O God. Has revealed, you have revealed yourself to us in Christ. The Son has made known to us the Father and the Spirit and Himself. Oh, I pray that through your word we would see the glory of the Son, the glory of Christ. The words we spoke earlier in the creed, that those words would truly mean something to us. We would stand in wonder and in awe and that we would never, never fear knowing that you, O God, are near. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm sure you know the stories um, where the hero, he is he dies or he is seemingly dead only, be, only to be brought back to life. You know, stories like this abound where the hero dies at the end of one episode or the end of a movie only to be revived in the next episode or in the sequel. In some ways, that's what we have with Joseph. At the end of this passage here, at the end of Genesis 37, Jacob truly thinks that Joseph is dead. 
He truly thinks his son is dead, and his brothers assume that he's out of the picture, gone for good. I mean, they would not have sold him into slavery only to think that he might come back around many years later in a position of authority. They think he's gone. But little do they know, Joseph, he's not out of the picture. And so when we get to chapter 45, and Joseph, he reveals himself to his brothers, we have a resurrection of sorts. And we'll find that his brothers, they're grief-stricken because of the wrongs that they have done, while Jacob will be filled with joy because he gets to see his son's face once again. So today's passage will not end with this resurrection-like story. It'll end with Jacob mourning over the loss of his son, but this mourning will one day be turned to joy. He will find that there's joy to be had at the end of this long road of suffering. In many ways, the story of Joseph, as I mentioned last week, is like that of Christ Jesus. But Jesus did die. He truly did taste death. Whereas Joseph's story is resurrection-like, Jesus truly rose up from the grave after being persecuted by the sons of Israel. But before we get to the resurrection, before we get to the exaltation we see great humiliation and suffering. And that's what we have today. Affliction and persecution by the sons of Israel. So this sermon will will have three layers to it. The first layer is going to be the historical events itself. We've read about it. We've already spoken about it. Joseph's brothers, they hate him. They sell him into slavery. That's the first layer, the historical events. The second layer is God's providence. Joseph's brothers are instruments in fulfilling Joseph's dreams. While they think they're taking care of the Joseph problem, one commentator notes, far from preventing Joseph's dream, the brothers actually become the agents of fulfilling it. So the first layer, historical events. Second layer, God's providence, third layer of this sermon is Joseph is a type of Christ. And really, Joseph is a type of Christ humiliation. And as we'll see here, this passage not only typifies Christ in his humiliation, it actually begs for Christ's humiliation. For apart from the humiliation of Christ, apart from Christ coming down and being humiliated willingly, we all stand condemned for the holy God. So those are the three layers of the sermon so you can kind of know what to look out for, the historical events, God's providence, and then Joseph is a type of Christ, humiliation. The first two layers we'll consider together as we walk through the text. And then after we walk through this passage, we'll step back and consider Jesus, how he is typified here through Joseph. So as we turn to the text, you can look at an outline here if you want on page five of your worship guide just to help us see the outline of events, to help us to see what's going on so that our minds are ready here. Um, In verses 12 through 17, Israel sends Joseph to check up on his brothers. Um, They are several days journey, they are several days journey away from Israel's encampment and they are out pasturing their flock and Joseph is sent out to check on them. Remember, Joseph brought a bad report back at the end or the beginning of chapter 37 and now he is sent out again. Then in verses 18 through 28, we see the brothers sell him into slavery. They initially want to kill him, as we've read about already, but instead they sell him. 
And then after that, in verses 29 through 35, we're gonna see distress and mourning over the loss of Joseph. Reuben, the firstborn, he is distressed, while Jacob is grieved. He says, I will go down to Sheol. I will spend my days in mourning for my beloved son. And then in the last verse, verse 36, we learn of Joseph's whereabouts. He sold to Potiphar in Egypt. And this clues us into the fact that Joseph's story is not yet complete. There's more to the story than what meets the eye here. If this was the first time you were reading, if this was the first time you're reading and it ended in verse 35, I would say we'd have no hope. But because of 36, it reminds us and points forward that God is in control. God is steering all events here, leading Joseph to the place where he would have him. So picking up with this first section in verses 12 through 17, we see Israel sending out Joseph to check up on his brothers. They're pasturing the flock. They're near Shechem. Um, Joseph has, like I mentioned earlier, he has been sent out before, or or I shouldn't say sent out, but in verse 2, he brought back a bad report of them to their father. Um, We talked about this last week. Joseph is no tattletale. Um, Rather, he's reliable. His father trusts him to bring back a reliable report of his brothers. Remember, his brothers are sketchy characters at best. I mean, we've seen them, no need to get back into them because we're about to see them and in, in, in their hatred and, and, and what they do here. But he's brought back a bad report to, uh, to their father. And so now in verse 13, we see Israel says to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And so I find it interesting that Israel sends Joseph to check on his brothers, not because he doesn't trust him, but surely he was aware of the brother's hatred towards him. Well, maybe not. We really don't know. Uh, maybe, Maybe Jacob didn't know. Maybe he had no idea what was going on in his household. We don't know. But I also find it interesting that Joseph, he goes He seems to willingly go. I mean, we don't know what the conversation was like. I mean, surely he knows of their hatred towards him. Remember, they won't even speak a peaceful word to him. But once again, we're talking about family. I mean, surely they wouldn't treat him with harm, right? I mean, besides, there's no mention of a plot to to harm him prior to this. So Joseph goes, he goes to Shechem, but he doesn't find his brothers there. Um, As we see here in, in that he comes to Shechem at the end of verse 14 and he didn't find them. Really at this point, he could have returned home. He he could have gone back. He could have gone back to his father and told him that they weren't there. That would have been a truthful report, but he continues looking for them. So in verses 15 through 17, there's a man here that finds Joseph wandering in the field and he asks him, what are you seeking? And Joseph tells him, I'm seeking my brothers. And the man tells him that, your brothers have gone to Dothan. They're not here. Dothan was 13 miles uh, north of Shechem. Instead of turning around, going back home, Joseph goes to find his brothers because this man told him that that's where they were. Now, I suppose you could read this and say that's luck, that's coincidence, but I would argue with you that that misses the point. For this very event, 
while it seems very subtle here, it shows us the providential hand of God in guiding Joseph to his brothers. Remember, these events did not catch God off guard. God is not surprised by the hatred that Joseph's brothers feel towards him. In fact, he will use their hatred to get Joseph to Egypt, which is where he planned to send him all along. Remember back in Genesis 15, remember that, remember this one. If you need to look at that later, make note and go back and look. But God prophesied to Abraham that Abraham's descendants will be afflicted for 400 years in a foreign land. That happens when they go to Egypt and then they'll be released. Here, what we have is the beginnings of that taking, taking place. So here we have the start of that. This account is gonna be the beginning of getting Abraham's descendants to Egypt. More on that to come. But let's just think about what we see here in this first section. We see Joseph being sent out by Israel to check up on his sons. Then we have this man directing Joseph to go to Dothan, where his brothers have gone. And while this passage does not say this explicitly, we can see God guiding Joseph to the place where he needs to be. Why else would this be here? Why else would this even be in the text? As such, this reminds us of God's providential hand, his providential workings, not only in the, we think about God's providence in the big things, we think about the Exodus, we think about the parting of the sea, but also in the mundane, a man directing Joseph, to go to his brothers. So now as we transition into this next section here, verses 18 through 28, we're gonna see Israel's sons now acting upon their hatred towards Joseph. In the first section, we have the setting. Joseph's on his way to check up on his brothers. And now as he is going, in verse 18, they see him from afar. How do you think they recognized him? How do you think? The robe, right? Remember the robe. It distinguished him, set him apart that his dad gave him. That was another one of the things that probably set the brothers off a little bit, the robe, right? So they recognize him because of the robe. And so just think about what it is here. They recognize him and what do they do? Look at verse 18 again. They conspired against him to kill him. The very sight of their brother aroused their anger to such a point that they conspired against him to kill him. On a side note here, I would just encourage our families. Anger is not a small deal. Don't chalk it up to childishness. These are grown men, but don't just chalk it up to childishness. Anger is serious. Anger is not something we say, oh, well, you know what? He's just immature. She's just young. No, this is serious sin. Do not dismiss sin. So just think about what we have here. They see their brother from afar and they are so angered, so enraged against him that they conspire to kill him. And then in verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. And then at the end of verse 20, after they've plotted to, to throw him in, to kill him, throw him into this pit, they say, what will become of his dreams then? The dreams that Joseph had had an effect upon his brothers. They hated him before he told them about the dreams. 
And afterward, after he relayed these dreams, they resented him even more. But it's not Joseph who they ultimately hate. Think about it. It's not Joseph who they're ultimately fighting against. Who were these revelatory dreams from? From God. George Lawson, he says this, while they persecuted their poor brother, they actually insulted the sovereign of the world. You may not be familiar with that name, George Lawson. He lived during the 18th, 19th centuries. Charles Spurgeon was familiar of him, and he said, Dr. Lawson had a fertile mind and a heart alive both to the human and divine side of truth. And as Lawson points out here, while Joseph's brothers are actually, I mean, while they're opposed to Joseph, yes, they're actually opposed to the Lord. And he goes on to write, they intended to frustrate the word of the Lord and hope they would bring to nothing the counsels of the Most High. Presumptuous creatures. Did they think that they were stronger than the Almighty? If they had cut Joseph into a thousand pieces, the word of the Lord would have stood firm and sure. Joseph's brothers were trying to prevent Joseph's dreams from coming to pass. That's why we see in verse 20 that they say, after they're going to throw him into the pit, we will then see what will become of his dreams. After we kill him, we'll see what will become of these dreams. So they plotted to murder Joseph, and then they plotted to deceive their father. They're going to say that he was killed by a wild beast, and their reasoning was to bring these dreams to an end. Their anger here shows that they understood the dreams well. They understood what God had shown them. They understood that well. And they most likely knew that the doubling of these dreams we talked about last week signified the certainty that these things will come to pass. So the sons of Israel, they knew God's plan, but they didn't like it. So they acted in opposition to it. They acted in opposition to God. So just a question for you, what about you? How do you respond to God's revealed counsel? Do you suppress the truth about God? Do you resist God's truth with hostility? Or do you receive God's word with joy? with joy no matter what the word of God says because you know that God is good and that his ways are always right. Well, unbeknown to Joseph's brothers, while they're fighting against God, they're actually going to play a significant role in God's plan. And so in chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 45, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he says, it was not you who sent me here, It was God. So God will work through this. He will accomplish his purposes through the evil of Israel's sons. But that doesn't diminish the evil that we have here. Sometimes because we know what is going to come, because we know the end of the story, we know the good that comes, we can almost overlook the evil. But just because God will bring good out of this, this does not make this any less evil. Joseph's brothers, remember, they desire to kill him. Then they desire to lie about it to their father. 
I mean, this is just sheer evil. This is wickedness. But by the restraining grace of God, they will not go through their plan. They will not go through with their plan to shed his blood. In verses 21 and 22, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, he persuades his brothers to refrain from killing him. He says, let us not take his life. Shed no blood. Throw him there then into this pit. The idea possibly being leave him there, let him starve. We don't know for sure, but throw him into the pit. So, so Reuben saves him, preserves his life by wanting to throw him into the pit. The pit would be a cistern. Um, these would be used to store rainwater. Um, when they were empty during dry seasons, these would sometimes be used as temporary prison cells. That's where Joseph is. And so Joseph convinces, I'm sorry, Reuben convinces his brothers to throw, them in, throw him into the pit so that at the end of verse 22, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. We don't know what's come over Reuben. We've seen Reuben, Reuben's probably in a pretty bad relationship with his father. Maybe this is a way to get back in his father's good graces. We don't know. But nonetheless, by the restraining grace of God, he uses Reuben to deliver Joseph from their hands. And so after this, so what we have in 19 through 21 are really their deliberations about what to do. So they're saying, here's what we're going to do in in 19 through 22. Here's what we're going to do to Joseph. And so now as Joseph comes in verse 23 and 24, as he finally arrives, they strip him of his robe. Verse 24, they took him and threw him into the pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So there's no record here of Joseph's response, of his response, whether he resisted or pleaded with his brothers. But in chapter 42, verse 21, when the brothers are placed in custody, this is what they say. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. So we don't know what Joseph said. We can infer that he begged them not to treat him this way. He was in distress when they captured him. They disrobed him and threw him into the pit. But notice how hard-hearted they are. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Brothers thrown into a pit, want to kill him, strip him of his robe, throw him into the pit. He's screaming in distress. And what are they doing? they're eating lunch. It's been a while since I've read Crime and Punishment. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that book. But if my recollection serves me right, the main character, he commits a heinous crime. He commits a murder. And he's so burdened with guilt that he can't eat. He can't drink. He can't rest. But that's not what we see here with these brothers. They're doing something so heinous and then they sit down to eat. Now, they're eventually going to be burdened with guilt. We'll see that a couple of decades later when they travel to Egypt, but right now his brothers appear to be so hard-hearted that they're able to sit down and eat while their brother is crying out with anguish. I mean, just think about that. I'm just trying to point out to you the hard-hearted wickedness of these brothers that are doing this to him. So Joseph, he's here in the pit crying out. His brother's are eating lunch, and while they're eating, they look up Verse 25, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites. These are Ishmaelite merchants. 
Just before we dig into this, because if you've read it, you may be confused. Um, we're going to see Ishmaelites and Midianites. Those are both, so Ishmael and Midian are both sons of Abraham, one by Hagar, one by Keturah. But what we see here is these two groups are really used interchangeably. In verse 25, this group is referred to as Ishmaelites. Um, They're on their way to Egypt. Verse 28, we see them referred to as Midianites. Um, But one place you could go to later on for help would be Judges 8, where you would see these two groups identified as one and the same. So anyways, we have this group of men who are descended from Joseph's great uncle, and they're passing by on their way to Egypt to go down there to trade their goods. And this gives Judah this great idea. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So consider the logic. We kill our brother, we profit nothing, But if we sell our brother, not only will we make money, but his blood will not be on our hands. Remember, these are not children. These are grown men. These are grown men who are coming up with these ideas and they all agree. They think this is a good idea. They think this is their best option. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. After all, besides, he is our own brother. He is our own flesh. I mean, in what dimension is this justifiable? I mean, think about that. I know, I'm sure you've, I'm an old, I grew up an only child, but I'm sure those of you who grew up with siblings, there may have been some thoughts that passed through your head. You may have had some things where you're like, eh, I mean, I'm sure that happens in our home. I don't know. I, I don't know my kids' thoughts. I see what they do. But how on earth could they go through with this? How is this justifiable? Let's not kill him because he's our only, he's our flesh. Let's sell him and make money on him. So this just shows the wicked heart of Joseph's brothers. They wanted to kill him, but it seemed more reasonable to sell him into slavery. And that's what they did. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And as we read at the end of verse 28, they took him to Egypt. So once again, through this event, we see God's providential hand. While the sons of Israel that are acting out of pure hatred and cruelty, Joseph is going exactly where God would have him go. I mean, just think about how God orchestrated this event. He does not incite Joseph's brothers to hate Joseph. Yet God delivered Joseph from bloodshed by the hand of Reuben. In the words of George Lawson, Quoting him again, God who rules amidst the raging of the seas and stills the tumult of the people controlled their rage and restrained its remainder. Not only did God deliver Joseph from bloodshed, but he sent him to Egypt through Judah and the Ishmaelites. Lawson writes, it was of God that a caravan of Ishmaelite merchants passed along in view of the sons of Jacob. Before Joseph perished in the pit and in the same divine providence inspired Judah with the proposal of selling him to these Ishmaelites and disposed the hearts of his brethren to approve of the thought. These events did not catch God off guard. In fact, he sovereignly orchestrated the whole thing without being the author of evil and without violating the will of man. 
So moving on to the next section here, verses 29 through 35, we see the aftermath of of these events here. In verse 29, Reuben returns to the pit. Joseph's not there. We don't know where Reuben was, what he went off to do, but he comes back here because he was going to rescue him. Remember verse 22, he was going to rescue him from the pit and return him to their father. And now he's returned. Joseph's not there. He tears his clothes as we see here. And he is grieving. He's mourning. That's what the sign is, as he tears his clothes in verse 29. And then in verse 30, he says, after he returned to his brothers, the boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? So remember, Reuben is the firstborn of Israel. He would have the principal responsibility for his brothers as the oldest son. And so in one sense, what these words are saying here, what am I going to tell our father has happened to Joseph? Well, they must have discussed that because they have a plan. They plan to tell their father that Joseph was slaughtered. There's no discussion of their deliberation, but they're all in on it. And so they must have discussed it. In verses 31 and 32, they slaughter a goat, they dip the robe in blood, and then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. They ask him to identify it. Is this your son's robe or not? So several considerations here. All the brothers are in on this deceptive plot. No one goes against it. No one steps up and there's not one whistleblower here. No one steps up and goes against it. Not even Reuben. Second, it looks like they sent messengers. Verse 32, they sent the robe and brought it to their father. Looks like they sent messengers to deliver this news. It looks like they sent someone else to inform their father of this news. In a way, it would be like delivering bad news by email or by letter today. When it should be the brothers. If this was real, it should be the brothers who tell these things to their father. When I was thinking about this, it just came to mind. One one aspect that I really appreciate about our nation's military is when a service member dies, our government takes responsibility They take responsibility for this and they promptly notify the family of the deceased and they do so in person. While we know there's no death here, it looks like the brothers send someone else ahead of them to deliver the bad news when this should be their news to share. Just shows you what they're up to. Shows you the deception of this plot. And then a third consideration, think about what they've done. They dip this robe in goat's blood So they're going to use goat's blood to deceive their father. It's ironic because if you remember, what did their father use to deceive his father? Goat's skin. So it's somewhat ironic that Jacob put goat's skin on his arms to trick his father into thinking he was Esau, and now he's going to be deceived by goat's blood into thinking his son is dead. So Jacob, he assumes this is his son's. Verse 33, he he says, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then he tears his garments, puts on sackcloth. So he is mourning here. He's distraught because he's lost his beloved son. And then interestingly, 
Verse 35, all his sons, all his daughters, they rose up to comfort him. Think about that. The sons come to comfort him? They know the truth. They're going along with the conspiracy. The way they could have truly comforted him, well, maybe not. I don't know if this would be comforting or not. But if they told him the truth, there would be at least a chance to go buy Joseph back from slavery. But they conceal the truth. And they show themselves to be hypocritical as they seek to comfort their father. But as we see here in the middle of verse 35, he refused to be comforted. He says he will go down to Sheol to his son in mourning. As one commentator notes, Jacob is announcing that he will be inconsolable in this life. He will mourn and grieve for his son as long as he lives. So in verses 29 through 35, we see deception. We see mourning. But that's not where this narrative ends. In verse 36, we see Joseph's whereabouts. He sold to Potiphar. He's in Egypt. Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh, and this is where Joseph ends up. Just imagine if the narrative concludes with verse 35, we would learn that Israel's sons are wicked, envious, and vile. They desire to kill their brother, but instead they sell him into slavery. On the ground level, their sin leads to more sin. And at this point, the text shows us no sign of remorse. They're hard-hearted. They sat down to eat while their brother was crying out from the pit. And then hypocritically, they sought to comfort him after they deceived him into thinking that their brother was mauled by a wild animal, by a fierce animal. But in all reality, the fierce animal was Joseph's brothers. They betrayed their brother. They handed him over for 20 shekels of silver. But as we know, there's more to this narrative than that. That's why we have verse 36. Verse 36 keys us into the fact that Joseph's story is not over. Joseph is now down in Egypt. His story is not over. And if we were reading Genesis for the first time, we might think back to Genesis 15. They're going to be in a foreign land. Maybe that's what this is. I don't know. Maybe that's what this is though. But what we do see, Joseph's story is not over. And so if we read verse 36 in light of what we're gonna see in the rest of the narrative, we know that Joseph is exactly where God would have him. As Joseph will tell his brothers after the death of their father, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, this is all part of God's plan. And while Joseph's brothers sought to get rid of him, they sought to get rid of him for good. They're actually instruments in God's plan. God's plan was to preserve Jacob and his family during this time of famine. The the promise of one who would bless all the families of the earth, there will be a partial fulfillment in Joseph, but that promise has not come to pass yet. So he will preserve Jacob and his family. But also the plan was for them to move to Egypt. That God might one day show his mighty arm of salvation when he delivers Israel from Egyptian captivity. So none of these events are taking place outside of God's purview. As our confession states, nothing happens by chance or outside the sphere of God's providence. 
So as God's children, we ought to take comfort in knowing that nothing comes our way that is outside of God's sovereign reign. As Charles Spurgeon notes, the safest part of a Christian's life is the time of his trial. Smooth water on the way to heaven is always a sign that the soul should keep wide awake for danger is near. But Spurgeon says the safest time in our life is in the time of trial. Why could he say that? Well, one thing we're going to be reminded of over and over is that God is with Joseph throughout all of these years of suffering and affliction. And I would think that if we could ask Joseph today, if we could ask him about this time in his life, that he would say there is no place he would rather be than with God in the midst of such affliction and suffering. After all, Joseph was right where God wanted him to be. And we should take comfort in this. We should take comfort in the experienced reality that God is in control, not us. God ordains all that comes to pass. He ordained Joseph's suffering for good, and he ordained the suffering of Jesus Christ for good. As I mentioned earlier, there are three levels to this sermon. The ground level, the historical events, the sons of Israel hate Joseph, sell him into slavery, the providential layers where God is working all things together for good, the good of his covenant people by sending Joseph into slavery where he will eventually be exalted to a position of prominence. And he'll be used as an instrument of God to deliver the people of God from sure starvation. And the third level is the level of Joseph as a type of Christ, humiliation. This level is not divorced from the historical events or from God's providence, for it is God's providence that brought good through Joseph's humiliation. And it's the providential hand of God that brings even greater good through the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And we can say that with both Joseph and with Jesus, Apart from their humiliation, there would be no exaltation. But we'll leave the exaltation for later sermons. For now, let's just consider the humiliation. So what is humiliation? Well, humiliation refers to disgrace, to the act of lowering the status of someone. Humiliation is more than embarrassment. It's being treated with contempt to be devalued. Just think about Joseph. He is a son of Israel. It was to Israel that the promises of God have been passed down. Therefore, he belongs to the covenant people of God. This means the promise of land, the promise of becoming a great nation, the promise of being a blessing to the nations. Those all belong to Joseph. Joseph was an heir to these glorious promises from God. Yet as we see here in Genesis 37... Joseph was despised and rejected by his brothers. They hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. They were jealous of him. And instead of treating him with respect as one of the sons of Israel, they cast him into a pit. Similarly, but on an even greater scale, Jesus Christ was hated by the sons of Israel. He was born among Israel's offspring, but he was unlike any who ever lived before him or will ever live after him. 
While Joseph is a type, he is merely a type. For Jesus Christ was without sin. Joseph was a sinner. Jesus was no sinner. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He was without sin, yet he was hated by the sons of Israel. They didn't know who he was, but they hated him. They spat in his face. They breathed murderous threats against him. And this all came from the sons of Israel. Returning to Joseph. When the sons of Israel threw him into a pit, we read earlier in verse 23 that they stripped him of his robe. They stripped him of his garments. Similarly, Jesus was stripped of his garments. Yes, he was dressed in a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns was placed on his head, but he was stripped from his garments. And then after he was crucified, the soldiers removed his garments and divided them among themselves. The very act of stripping Joseph and stripping Christ Jesus is humiliating. To be stripped down is to be exposed, to have parts of your body exposed to the public that should not be seen by the public. This is degrading. This is a disgrace. Moreover, while Joseph was hated by his brothers, stripped of his robe, thrown into this pit, we see that he was sold for 20 shekels of silver. In verse 28, 20 shekels of silver. 20 shekels of silver was the going rate for a slave. That's how much you would sell a slave for. Yet Joseph was one of their own. I mean, a brother, a brother has no price. A brother's worth is invaluable. Just consider the humiliation. How humiliating it was to be hated by his brothers to be stripped of his robe, thrown into the pit, only to be removed, to be traded to somebody for 20 shekels of silver. This is their brother, their very own flesh and blood, and they considered him worth no more than 20 shekels of silver, one of their very own, yet treated as an enemy. Isn't that similar to what happened to Jesus? As we learn in Matthew 26, Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. This is the same compensation that was given under the old covenant when an ox gored a slave. That was how much Jesus' worth was to Judas. That's the price he placed on Jesus' head. As one commentator notes, Judas sells his master cheaply. Just think about humiliating this is. The son of God, God in the flesh sold for 30 pieces of silver. The one who is infinitely rich sold for next to nothing. Another author notes when your desires are disordered, you'll hold cheap things as costly and costly things as cheap. And Judas clearly, clearly disregarded his master's worth as he thought he could place a price on his head. So when we consider Joseph's humiliation in Genesis 37 as a type of Christ's humiliation, we're reminded of the need for Christ's humiliation. A passage like this begs for Christ's humiliation. Not so that we can laugh at or scorn the eternal son of God, but because we too are sinners like the sons of Israel. And because we are sinners like the sons of Israel, the humiliation of Christ was 
absolutely necessary. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was humiliated so that we will not be humiliated on the great day of God's wrath. He was humiliated in our place. Can't you see? It, was, it should have been you and me that hung on that tree, not him. It should have been us but yet he was humiliated that we might not be humiliated on that great day of God's wrath. One who is so grand, so majestic, became the face of humiliation. He humbled himself by taking on our lowly form and by taking on our lowly form, we must remember he did not cease to be what he always was as God. Rather, he assumed our place. He assumed our likeness and died in our place. And this is the height of humiliation. The one who created the world and everything in it, the one to whom all honor and glory and power belong, he subjected himself to sinful man that he might die for us. He subjected himself to the sons of Israel that he might taste death on behalf of his children. He subjected himself to men full of vile and wickedness and deceit that we might stand with him on the great day of the Lord. He subjected himself to the wrath of God, the very wrath that our sins deserve. He subjected himself to this wrath. And now for all who believe in him, you will escape the wrath of God. Through his humiliation. The sins of the faithful have been forgiven. And because our sins have been forgiven and because his righteousness has been credited to us, we gain Christ. We gain him. Whereas Joseph will be reunited to his brothers after many years of suffering and affliction. One day when this life of suffering is over, we will see our Savior as he is. And we will spend eternity with him. And none of this would be possible apart from his humiliation. About this, we should rejoice. We should be grateful. But we should not move on as though Christ's humiliation is only applicable to initial conversion. John Owen, he encourages us to meditate upon Christ's humiliation. In his book, The Glory of Christ, he makes the case from 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are transformed by beholding the glory of Christ. And in this book, he sets out to help us behold the glory of Christ. As Owen understood, the Christian life is not a formula. Just do this and then everything's gonna be okay over here. The essence of the Christian life is about beholding the glory of Christ. And one way we behold the glory of Christ is by meditating upon his humiliation. And as we meditate upon his humiliation, Owen says, we may well ask, what will Christ not do for us? He who emptied and humbled himself, who came down from the infinite height of his glory to take our finite nature into union with his infinite nature, will he not meet all our needs and answer according to his infinite wisdom all our prayers for help? Will he not do all that is necessary for us to be eternally saved will he not be a sanctuary for us? Just think about it. If you didn't catch all that, here, here's the gist. If Christ humbled himself for us, will he not do all that is necessary for us to be eternally saved? 
If Christ went to such great lengths to redeem us, ought we not have confidence that he will continue to provide for us and care for us no matter what we're going through? And if Christ suffered on our behalf, ought we not rejoice in our sufferings? Knowing that God is working all things together for good and knowing that we're not greater than our master, if our master suffered, then we too will suffer. I mean, just think about it. If Christ were merely a man, we would not have hope. There'd be no hope because he died then like any other man. But as Owen reminds us, we have no reason to fear his ability and power for in becoming man, he lost nothing of his power of the almighty God, nor of his infinite wisdom and glorious grace. Unlike Joseph, remember Joseph's just a type. Unlike Joseph Christ, Jesus is God. Therefore, his humiliation took place according to the flesh, not according to the Godhead, but because these two natures were so intricately united to one another, we can say along with the Apostle Paul that God obtained the church with his own blood. So I pray that you will never tire of the grandeur of God dying for his people. Let us continually say, along with Charles Wesley, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? And can it be that we should rejoice in this? But when we stop meditating upon the glory of Christ's humiliation, this is when we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And this is when we begin to cling more closely to the things of this world than we ought. For this reason, Owen writes, I exhort you to spend much time meditating on the glory of Christ and his humiliation. Unless we are diligent in this, it is impossible to keep our faith steadily fixed on Christ or to be ready for self-denial and taking up our cross. For the humbling of Christ is the chief motive for this duty, and no man denies himself rightly who does not consider the self-denial of the Son of God. And Owen goes on to list some of these things of which we ought to deny ourselves. Our goods, our stuff, our rights, our freedoms, our relationships, and even our own lives. He's not saying that these things are necessarily bad. But what he is saying that all, he's saying that all these things, they will soon perish. In his words, they are perishing things from which Whether we like it or not, death will separate us. The things you love in this world, death will separate you from. That's what Owen is saying. Reflect upon Christ, remember him, because we get drawn to all these things in the world. All of these things, death will separate us from. He says, these are perishing things from which whether we like it or not, death will separate us. But the glory of Christ is forever. Believers will never be separated from it. So if you find yourself at any time unwilling to part with this world, then lift up your eyes and by faith behold the glory of Christ who made himself of no reputation. The things of this earth, they might seem glorious, but their glory will one day come to nothing. But the glory of Christ will remain forever. There's not a square inch of creation that does not belong and that does not declare the glory 
of God. But as we know, apart from God shining light in our hearts through the word of God, we're all blinded to this glory. But thanks be to God that he has revealed his glory to us through his word in the face of Jesus Christ. And all throughout the scriptures, we see types and shadows of the glorious Christ. It's my burden to declare to you the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because he is the one who suffered and died, yet lives forevermore. Therefore, it is to him you must look and continue to look for he is our hope. He is our light. He is our strength. In him, we find a cornerstone that will stand no matter what this world might bring your way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that your spirit has shown light in our hearts to give us the knowledge to see the glory of Christ. Now I pray for those who are here among us whose eyes do not see. I pray that you would open blind eyes I pray that these words would not fall on deaf ears. I pray you would give us hearing, give us sight, help us to see the glory of Christ and help us to love Christ. I know I pray that our lives would be transformed. We might become more and more like Christ all the way through. Every part of us, I pray that we wouldn't just love the idea of Christ, but that we would love Christ. Help us as we are weak, we are frail, we're feeble. We need you to keep us. And I pray this in no other name, but Jesus' name, the glorious one. Amen. So go ahead and stand, and I'll read a benediction from Romans 15. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.